Let me invite you at this time to stand and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. So we're in Isaiah 7, and I'll read verses 18 through 25 for you. And sometimes have you ever been told, okay, is it going to be the hard way or the easy way? For Israel, you see in Isaiah, frequently it is the hard way. It's the hard way because their hearts are hard. And so this morning, this passage stands as a warning that there is an easier way, the way of God's mercy and His love, and we're encouraged to take that way this morning. So I'll read to you Isaiah chapter 7, verses 18 through 25, and you're going to hear the repetition of, in that day, you'll hear that four times, looking forward to God's day of judgment, which is impending and coming. So Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the hair and the head of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey." In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns with bow and arrows. A man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you to humble ourselves, to hear from you, to hear from your word, and we ask your spirit to guide and lead us. Would you shape and form our very character, our thoughts, our actions, that they would give you honor and glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This summer, we had a little disruption in our kitchen. Our family was there. Our kids happened to all be home, and we were making lunch together, and there was sort of a commotion around one of the air conditioning vents in our kitchen. And I looked over, and I saw something black coming out of the vent there in the kitchen, and obviously this was a huge disruption, and I turned to, and and before I could turn and visualize what exactly was coming out of the vent, it fell to the ground, and it it was large enough it made a noise when it hit the uh, ground. So it was a tarantula, a big, hairy tarantula. I'm not a tarantula person don't like them, don't understand why God made them. I'm sure he had good reason, but that thing must have been up in the attic, and it was summer, so it was too hot, so he decided, I'm going down to the air conditioning. 
And it was very disruptive. This invader who had come into our kitchen, very disruptive to my family and I as we, fortunately, it looked like it was kind of dying and I kind of helped it along the way. (laughs) But needless to say, just like we were disrupted there in the kitchen, God will bring disruptions into your life, into my life. He'll bring these disruptions. And in those moments, sometimes they're invaders. And in this moment, yes, so it could be like the disruption of having a baby. That would be an invader. God will bring the disruption to us and it's, it can be very upsetting, and it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to trust in God. You see some of the context of this passage. We saw this last week. God invites King Ahaz, the king of Judah. He invites him in verse 11 to ask for a sign. And what does Ahaz do? No, I'm not going to ask you for a sign. At first look, it seems pious that he's doing this but it's actually disobedience. You see, sometimes in our life when disruption comes, the last place we will trust is God. And so Ahaz, instead of asking for a sign and obeying God, wants to make an alliance with Assyria and deliver himself. He wants to trust in something other than God. And in those times in our lives where we're being disrupted, when there's an invader hard time, difficult time, upsetting circumstances that happen to us, in those moments, we're going to be challenged. Will we trust in God? Will we see those disruptive moments as an invitation by God's grace to come back to Him again in repentance and trust in Him? That's the challenge for us. Because God is going to send invaders to disrupt our lives. And in those moments, who will we trust? We must trust in God alone. If we seek assurances elsewhere, if we make alliances with other things in our life, we're going to be disappointed. And we see here in this passage four times God doing things to lead his people back to repentance. And so that's what we're going to look at And we're going to use this repetition of in that day, Isaiah, looking forward to the day of God's judgment to create four different sections uh, here in this passage. And the first thing you're going to see God doing when his people don't trust him and reject God, what does God do? The first thing I'm going to show you is he judges them. And this is in verses 18 and 19. We read there, in that day... The Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt. Egypt, Israel's age-old enemy. What's happening here? God is whistling, calling them to come and to invade. Uh, This is the second time in Isaiah. Isaiah has a lot of good, helpful repetition for us. Second time we've seen Isaiah uh, depict God as whistling. If you turn back to chapter 5, verse 26... We read there, he will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And the depiction here is a God who is sovereign, who is powerful, powerful enough that he just whistles like we whistle for our dogs. He commands the superpowers 
of his day. And he does this as part of his grace and mercy. He is warning Israel, telling them ahead of time, this is what's going to happen. Egypt will come. And then look at the end of verse 18. The bee that is in the land of Assyria. Assyria will come. He tells them ahead of time that they might turn from their wicked ways, repent, and trust in him. And we see in verse 19 that these invaders will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks. So that communicates to us there'll be nowhere to hide. It'll be in the steep ravines, and the invaders will come. Perhaps we would hide in the clefts of the rocks, but there the invaders are going to come. You can't escape God's judgment if you don't trust in Him. And then the invaders will be on the thorn bushes, so you can kind of think of this as the badlands, and on the pastures, you can think of that as the good lands. So it is a statement of totality that God's judgment, no one escapes except through Christ. You see, the good news of the gospel is this, that the judgment due to us for sin has fallen on Christ. That's what we see depicted on the cross. Christ satisfies God's wrath on the cross atoning for us, taking the punishment that was due to God for our sin, He takes that on. And so, by so doing, a person who has placed their faith in Christ escapes God's impending judgment. So, in each of the points that I'm going to make this morning, Yes, God will judge, but at the same time, He will pardon those who are found in Christ. The opposite of each of these main points is true for the Christian, and that is really the good news. God will, in point of fact, judge, but escape is possible from that judgment through Jesus Christ. Sometimes when you think about and hear about someone's conversion to Christianity, they'll talk about how they hit rock bottom. And how does that go? Well, they look for salvation in various things. It could be, oh, I thought success would bring me happiness, or a certain job, or a certain net worth would bring me happiness, and, and that failed, and so I tried this other thing, and relationships, and that didn't work, and so I tried this other thing. And you hear Sometimes in people's conversion story, this descent that happens until they hit rock bottom and finally turn and trust in God. This is how God's grace works. We foolishly trust in other things, and God purposefully frustrates that until we can only turn to Him. It's the same dynamic at work here in Isaiah 7. Though Israel will look for deliverance everywhere except with God, he will hem them in and by his sovereignty and his power bring invaders, difficult circumstances in their life, difficult circumstances in our life, until we reach the end of ourselves and trust in him. So hard circumstances, difficult 
things that are brought into your life. And these difficult things can come into our life directly by God's providence. Difficulties can come into our life. Invaders, so to speak, can come into our life just as a matter of course living in a fallen world. They can come into our life because we're sinners. They can come into our life because we're stupid sometimes. God can work by His mercy and grace even in these difficult circumstances when we, by His grace, turn toward Him rather than away. And that's the invitation here. In verses 18 and 19, when you read about God's impending judgment coming to Israel in the form of flies and bees that will invade all the land, it's an invitation for Israel to repent and to turn to Him. And so we too, in the hard circumstances of life, are invited to have a hard faith. Remember chapter 9, verse 7. Look at the end there of verse... Excuse me, chapter 7, verse 9. At the end of verse 9, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Hard circumstances require a hard or firm faith faith. And the harder things get in our life, the more we should only trust in God alone. And that's the invitation here. And this is God's mercy that He would cause difficulties in our life that we might turn to Him. So God will judge. That's the first thing God is going to do. But in Christ, we hear the good news. We will be pardoned. We will be pardoned. The judgment due to us for sin has fallen on him. So God will judge, but also look in verse 20. God will humiliate. In that day, so again, Isaiah, it's repeated here. He's looking forward to this coming day of judgment. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river, the king of Assyria. So foretelling of an Assyrian invasion here and the shaving that's going to take place We have to go back, Middle Eastern culture, right? The Bible written in a Middle Eastern context. Even to this day in the Middle East, people grow beards. If you've ever traveled in the Middle East or uh, have friends that are uh, Arab descent, having a beard, that's the way to go. And so this shaving is a humiliation that takes place. And just as the flies and the bees were on the thorn bushes and the pastures, so the shaving is going to take place of the head and the hair of the feet, so from the top to the bottom. And the hair of the feet actually is a euphemism to covered parts. So we're just going to say the exposed parts, the covered parts, the top of the head, the very bottom of the feet. It's a total picture of the humiliation that God will bring purposefully so that his people would trust in him. So verse 20, it's an expression of totality that comes. We've talked a lot about in Isaiah previously about the problem of pride. And the problem of pride is thinking too much of ourselves at the same time we think too little of God. That's really the definition of pride, thinking too much of ourselves too little of God. What does God do? I'm going to come and I'm going to shave you. I'm going to humiliate you purposefully that you might be broken through with regard to your pride. 
it's going to be the hard way. If you're prideful, I'm telling you, and we all are in some ways, it's going to be the hard way. And it's the hard way by God's grace because He loves you and wants to break through to you thinking of yourself that you're all that. He's going to break through. And the way He breaks through is to humiliate. And the humiliation is part of His grace that in fact, in Christ, what do we find out? In Christ, is the Christian humiliated? No, exalted. In Christ, we are exalted. We are united to Christ, meaning that the spiritual things that Christ has accomplished by faith belong to us too. Therefore, as Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and God has exalted him, giving him a place of honor, so we too will have that place of honor in Christ. So God will indeed humiliate Israel. And they, this passage is to be taken as a warning. They, there is still time for them to turn from their wicked ways and trust in God. But if they don't, God is going to humiliate them in Christ, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, those of us in Christ will not be humiliated. Instead, God will exalt us in Him. To be humiliated, that might be hard to understand, but think of it this way, as whatever you trust in, whatever you depend on, will be taken away. A couple months ago, one of my kids got in their car, and they had the, the exact time that they needed to get to work, uh, and they got in their car and click, 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 click. Car wouldn't start. Battery was dead. So we just had a few minutes, so had to, had to jump the car, get it going, and of course, you know, dad is so good, and and one of my kids so mechanical, we changed the battery in the parking lot for the, while they were working. So we get a little credit there. But <laughs> my point in telling you that is how disappointing is that? You're depending on this vehicle to take you where you need to go. You are trusting that when you turn the key, something is going to happen, something good, and you'll get where you need to go. How many of you didn't even think about it this morning when you got in the car to come to church? It started and you went to church. We don't even think about it. But this idea of being ashamed or humiliated is that which I put my trust in doesn't come through. It doesn't work. And if you have that understanding, and if you think of Isaiah 7 here, and think of Romans 1.16 where Paul writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You have a richer, fuller biblical understanding of this concept of not being ashamed of the gospel. To say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, when Paul writes that, he's saying, I've staked my life on this. I've staked all eternity and everything I have and am on this gospel. And I have not been let down. And I have not been ashamed or embarrassed because of my faith. And so that concept 
that God will shave with a razor. He will purposefully humiliate that we might turn only to Him because only in Him, only in the gospel, only in Christ will we not be disappointed. And so, so far what I've shown you, God will judge, but the good news is that judgment has fallen on Christ if you're a Christian. God will humiliate, but the good news is if you belong to Christ, you will be exalted in Him. The next point here is verse 21 and 22, and it's that God will deprive. Now, we have to sort of delve into this a little bit, and I have a little bit of of an advantage because hopefully I've studied this and looked at it before I'm preaching it. But in verse 21, we see, In that day, so this day of judgment, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. That doesn't sound bad, does it? It doesn't sound bad. But the verb there, keep alive, is barely keep alive. And for Texans or anyone else, having one cow and two sheep, that isn't much, is it? It's not really a big herd, is it? And what we're getting at is God will deprive. And part of his depriving is to take away that which we're depending and trusting on so that we only trust in him. So barely keeping alive this cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk, and usually we think abundance of milk, that sounds good, but the reason the milk is abundant is because there's no offspring of this cow or these two sheep to drink the milk. So not only does he have a small flock or herd, but he has all this milk because no one, they're not fruitful. And he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. And the idea here is it's a, it's a picture of deprivation where you're only eating that which naturally occurs. And honey, while tasty, there's honey in the land because the land has been deprived. And so this is a picture of deprivation, not a blessing that's happening because they are not trusting in him. So God will, just like he deprives Israel here, he will purposefully deprive us of that which we trust in other than him that we might turn back to him. Now, we have something uh, every, well, every other February, I guess every two years, uh, we've decided to do something as a state where we all together are deprived and we have sort of a group camping experience by not having electricity. So all of us have this experience fresh in our mind, probably, and don't tell me if you've had electricity the whole time. So we didn't have it for about 20 hours. And of course, you know, you think, oh, it's the end of the world, you know. We're not used to being deprived, are we? We're very bad at being deprived. And imagine living in a country where a lot of countries have daily blackouts or rolling blackouts or brownouts uh, every day. And so here we are, we're deprived. We don't, at my house, we didn't have electricity for about two hours. Now save the generator with the electrical cord running the fridge because we had a lot of deer meat and I wasn't going to let that go bad. But when the electricity came on, when it came back on, 
uh, you're not supposed to do this. I was running everything. I was running the heat because it got cold in the house. I was running the oven. We were doing laundry. And I never had this happen before, but we actually tripped the 200 amp breaker that's at the pole. Now, fortunately, I figured it out because I called, you know, hey, do you, did your power cut back off? You know, no, we got power. Oh, okay, must be on our end. And I found it and flipped it back and stopped running everything. But that's kind of how we are, right? If you deprive us, we end up desiring that which we don't have all the more. And instead, this deprivation is meant to spiritually drive us to God. When we refuse to trust Him overtly or covertly, sometimes God will choose to deprive us purposefully that we might desire and trust only Him. Now, uh, Psalm 37.4 reads this way, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That sounds really good, doesn't it? I want the desires of my heart. You want the desires of your heart. But Psalm 37.4, you've got to get the order right. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You see, it is not safe for God to give you the desires of your heart unless what? You're delighting in Him. And when we delight in Him, He will not deprive us. If you're not delighting, He is not going to give you those desires. And if you are trusting in Christ, God will not deprive you. In Christ, we're not deprived, we're the opposite. We are blessed. Listen to this, and I realize the health wealth preachers have tried to ruin this, but from Mark chapter 10, we learn a, a little bit about this gospel situation with uh, deprivation and giving up. In Mark chapter 10, verse 28, Peter says to Jesus, this is kind of us, you know, we would be like this. Peter says, see, we have left everything and followed you. And it's probably with that tone. <laughs> and Jesus says in verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who has not received a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So the thing we need to hear from that passage is that whatever you give up in this world for the gospel, for my sake, for Jesus' sake and for the gospel, you will receive a hundredfold now, including the persecutions part. Don't leave that out. That's right in the text. The gospel has this reversal. Many who are first will be last, the last first. The gospel turns things upside down where the things we desire most, when we give those up, they are satisfied in other ways, in ways that 
give glory to God. And so God will at times deprive you in order to drive you back to him. He will put you by his sovereign power in uncomfortable situations that you might delight yourself all the more in him. And when we delight, he will give us the desires of our heart and we will be blessed. Well, the final point here is in verses 23 and 25, 23 through 25. God will indeed make desolate. That's the depiction that happens here in verse 22. There used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver. What happens? They become briars and thorns. Verse 24 is sort of a picture of a man coming with bows and arrows because it's wild there. The land has reverted. It hasn't been cultivated. And briars and thorns are being brought forth. And even verse 25, the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, oh, that just sounds like work, doesn't it? And it is. The effort that we put into something will come to nothing. God will make it desolate if we do not trust in Him alone. And so you see the briars and the thorns taking us back to Genesis 3.18. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. This is a going back in redemptive history, as it were, to a terrible time rather than moving forward, seeing the fruits of the land and the benefit of this cultivation, going back to briars and thorns. And you see in verse 25, the land is desolate enough. You just let the cattle loose and the sheep tread there because it is uncivilized and desolate. God has made it that way. It is not the orderly garden or the orderly city of God from Revelation 21, but briars and thorns result Whenever we do, whenever we trust in other things besides God. And so you see in this passage that without God's help, without salvation in Christ, what are we subject to? We are subject to God's judgment, humiliation, deprivation, and desolation. That is not good. But the good news is, in Christ, we avoid all that. Instead of God's judgment, we are pardoned. Instead of humiliation, we are exalted in Christ. Instead of being deprived, we are blessed. And instead of a desolate land, our lives bring forth fruit. Fruit that will last. But it all comes from trusting in God during those difficult, desperate disruptive times. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask that even those difficult, disruptive times, even when invaders come into our life, that these would be occasions we trust only in you. We pray you would soften our hearts to be receptive to your gospel way instead of the hard way. We thank you that you love us enough that if we harden our hearts, then you will take us down the hard way, the hard path. 
to break through to our lives. And we pray that in breaking through in our lives, we might repent and find new life in Christ alone. And we pray all this in His name. Amen.